my sister and mom were cycling sort of a, a while, a bit behind my dad and I. And um, these two guys were standing on the side of the road. They had machetes because they were working on the like trees there. So we were used to driving past, cycling past people with these big um, pungas. These guys, my dad and I rode past them and they like could see they were pretty out of it and they were they were sort of like just friendly like happy to see us but then they turned around obviously and saw two more cyclists coming and my mom and sister are both small um and they're on these big bikes and they obviously just look like easy targets <coughs> so they pushed my mom and sister off the bikes and um, the guy, my sister fell onto the ground and the, the one guy just took his knife and whacked her on the head. And she was luckily wearing a helmet, which had a massive crack in it from this knife. Um, and then my mom saw him doing that and she was like, no, fuck this. And um, chased after these guys who were trying to ride away on the bikes. And so she grabbed her one bag off the bike um, because it had the first aid kit in it. So she wanted to make sure my sister was fine and then saw my sister was fine. So then she threw the bag at the guys on the bikes. Um, the one guy got knocked off because um, it's quite, also if you get on like a 50 kilogram bike, it's not the same as riding a normal bike. Like and not it's, on drugs. And I mean, that's a, you know, it's hard enough when you're not on drugs, but it's like it's quite a thing to get used to balancing that serious weight. Um, they didn't quite calculate the situation, but I don't think they were expecting a fight either, to be fair. Um, but then, so this guy who'd been knocked off, off his bike by my mom then went and jumped on the other bike and knocked them both, then they both fell off. I'm not sure exactly what happened because I, my dad and I kind of like seen what was going on. We turned around and I just remember I was screaming my head off. We were riding back to them as fast as we could, but it's hard. Like you can see it happening in the distance and there's nothing you can do. Anyway, my mom, I think, chased them into the bushes and they ran away. <laughs> This is Tegan Phillips. She's a cartoonist, adventurer, and she's describing the day her mom and sister were attacked in Kenya while cycling through Africa as a family. As you can tell by a nonchalant account of events, Tegan and her family weren't put off. They completed the year-long African cycle without any major incident. We chat to Tegan about a trip, her life as a cartoonist, and her upcoming cycle from Cairo to Cape Town to set a world record. So I grew up in Cape Town and then I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to study. So I took a gap year and during that um, gap year and, and traveled and I decided I wanted to become a war journalist. I don't, I don't think I've actually ever told anybody this, um, but I, that was my like, I read a few books and then I decided, okay, I want to go into wasn't it was actually I was in the, in the Maldives um for half of my gap year working on a like a local island yeah so the Maldives everybody knows like the tourist side of it but there's also um a local side and you have summer islands out 
tourist-only islands and then you have local-only islands and there's pretty much no overlap except for maybe on the capital. But even on the capital, the, the, what tends to happen is you fly into the airport island, which is its own island, and then the resorts have their own boats that come and fetch the tourists and take them to the islands, um, the resort islands. So they never interact with local people. They never get to see the, the capital for one and then the local island. So a lot of the local islands have never literally never seen a, like a tourist. <laughs> um, no ways. It's, yeah, it's super interesting. It's like, a, it's, a, it's not a rich country, but, um, but really, yeah, one of the most interesting places, like if you ever feel like doing some fascinating exploring, um, and I, I guess almost one thing that's relevant to this discussion around conservation is that um, you think of the Maldives as being these white sandy beaches uh, but on the local islands, the beaches are the dump spots for rubbish. They don't have really systems to collect. Every week or two weeks or something, a boat comes to collect some of the rubbish. But um, the few islands that I was on, the, you can't actually like go for a walk on the beach because it's literally just trash. That like not enough space to put your feet down to walk. And, and is that that's not the islands that the tourists go to? Yeah, that's no, like that's the, the local islands. Yeah, and on the tourist islands, they have people that wake up every morning and go rake the beach, and they're like, with an actual. I mean, it's it's such a weird um, dynamic. Like so, and the, we went to a lot of tourist islands as well. Um, and you could sit on the tourist island and see, like, you paying people are paying I don't know, like fifty dollars for a cocktail, and then. Just across like a kilometer away, there's a local island and there's people that like don't earn fifty dollars in a whole year. And there's the this this hyper contrast. Um and yeah, and we and we started a whole beach cleanup program, but they they didn't like that at all. Um well they're the sort of like patriarchy of the island. And then I actually got kicked off the island because we were disrupting. Um anyway, the point of that story is that while I was there, um in the capital, Male, there was um, some major political riots. There was like a lot of weird political stuff going on um, with government corruption. And so like food prices were massively increasing, but the actual like economy wasn't improving. So people literally were getting to the point where they couldn't afford to buy food. So they were having riots in the streets. And then I was with a friend and we went to go see these riots. And then we ended up like being chased by police and running around. And it, it was like... Um, it's probably quite bad to say this because people were experiencing real problems and for us it was a bit of an adventure. It wasn't like um, whereas they, I mean, they, their grievances were very genuine. But it was such a... And then to to actually be able to talk about the, the sort of specific issues and explain it to my family, I thought like this is really fun and not fun. But it, it felt like it was something that I um, sort of got a satisfaction doing that. So then I thought, okay, I want to go to conflict zones and be a journalist. And so off to Rhodes University she went to study journalism. But Tegan would soon become disenchanted with the formalities and lack of creativity involved in journalism. And so she'd move on to study the next best thing, law. Yep, this adventure-craving creative cartoonist became a lawyer. And it was on the road to law, through an exchange program in a final year of studies, that her stars would start to align and her destiny would begin to unfold. 
I was going to finish um, my last semester in the UK as just a, like an exchange program. But because they only start there in October, I had like quite a long break between second, first semester here and second semester there. So I was thinking about how to spend that time and I just got into cycling. My dad had just discovered this uh, thing called cycle touring where you could like pack up bags, put on a bike. And he, I got home that holiday um, to my parents' house and my dad showed me this movie by Tom Allen um, who had cycled around the world. I really don't know what I'm doing. In case you forget which country comes next. What is the appeal of not knowing where you're going? You wouldn't get this on your P&O ferry, would you? <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet, what you're going to be eating. Do it. Do this kind of trip. Your life will never be the same again. I was so blown away by the fact that you could just, like, put things on a bike and actually ride with them. I've never seen that before. And, like... Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's not a very South African thing, but I couldn't get my head around the fact that you could do cycling as like a, a means of travel as opposed to just a sport. And then um, coincidentally, the next day, my dad was reading something by Tom Allen on Twitter and I saw, over his, like I was literally sitting next to him. I was like, Dad, wait, scroll up. And there was a competition where you could like win a, um, his old bike. Um, and his camping gear and stuff. So then I was like, well, dad, like, let me <laughs> let me look at that. And my dad was a, like, pretty reluctant. He was sort of just like, oh, no, I can just see this being a disaster. <laughs> and um, But anyway, the competition was based in the UK. And I'm like, well, I'm going to the UK. The universe is aligning. Um, and the, But to win the competition, you had to say what you would do with the bike. And my idea was... I would go there, cycle through the UK, cycle down to Spain, to the south of Spain, visit my sister. But there were so many people that had entered the competition. You could see all their entries in the comments and they were saying like, I'm going to do these amazing, I'm going to save the world with this bike if I get it. I will literally cure AIDS and cancer. And, and I was like, I, I, can't, I can't compete with these people. So... I thought if I could do something slightly different with my entry, it would at least give me an edge um, and sort of disguise that my actual adventure idea was not that interesting. <laughs> so that's how I drew. I was. I remember I was cycling up Oakhopsavac, um, and as I got to the top there, where you can kind of see the whole of Musenberg, I was like, I'm going to write a poem, and I'm going to draw it in comics, and I'm going to make it into a little video. And I thought of the poem like while I was cycling and that was the sort of turning point of my, like the whole trajectory of my life because then I made the video and I won the bike and I went to the UK and I did a comic blog and then the next year we went cycling and I kept the comic blog and then I just literally, that just became my job. <laughs> and so after winning Tom's bike and cycling to Spain, one adventure turned into another, and so too was the one cartoon followed by many more. And now, Tegan is a full-time cartoonist and adventurer. You may have seen her cartoons out there, and although she likes to call herself a cartoonist that draws comics, I'd say she's a comic that draws cartoons, because they're hilarious. 
Tegan's quirky humor and unique personality are captured in each drawing. If you see one of her drawings or comics, you'll know instantly they're hers. He has a snippet of a TEDx talk, which you should totally go check out if you haven't yet. She talks through fear and courage with the aid of cartoons. Cartooning is one of those careers where when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a cartoonist. And they say, oh, and what do you do for a living? (laughs) At the beginning, it was basically just like this constant battle between my self-esteem and bank balance fighting to see who could be the lowest. Like so many times in a life of adventure, Tegan persevered. She did the one thing she was truly talented at. She kept trying. She kept on going until slowly, over time, she got closer and closer to her goal. So what does it take to follow your heart over fear? And are there any personality traits that are inherent in the adventure seeker that we could all learn from? There's definitely an element of the adventure personality that is completely open to um, seeing similarities in all people in all areas and and the the sort of things that connect us all as opposed to seeing these superficial differences and thinking of things and people as being very distinct. Um, I think the more that you travel and meet different people, it's interesting, it's like the more different things you see, the less difference you see. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's sort of how you are saying with adventures that what you admire about them is a sense of openness. And I think it's almost like what would be useful for people is if we can stop seeing openness as something that can only be applied when you're traveling and rather see it as it's like a mindset that you can carry through your daily life. Maybe you're a cashier and you can go to work and have this sort of... the sense of openness in your being that every experience you have you're able to extract the value and the compassion and the learning and that that openness can give you that quality of life that adventurers have but you don't need to leave your house or leave your job um and it's i mean we can like right now sitting in the studio just to have like a bit of an open spirit which sounds a bit woo woo but um but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, and it's not even something that has to come from conversations or, or listening to people, but literally just looking around and, and admiring the, the existence of all the things that are here. <laughs> I saw you had another blog of doing a, a cycle trip with your family. Yes. So your dad's dream came true. Yes, it did. (laughs) Well, firstly, where did you cycle? And then what are the dynamics with cycling as a family? Um, So to answer your first question, we cycled through, um, we had had a year, we all took a year off. And we didn't have a set route. We knew we wanted to be in Zanzibar by like the middle of the year. And then we kind of just meandered up through um, pretty much all of the southern eastern African countries, except for Mozambique. We, um, yeah, so we did that and we went up to Zanzibar and then we came down back home. 
um, in a year. In a year, yeah. So I mean, we took it pretty slowly. We caught the occasional ferry.、Uh, we did catch a train at some point. So we went. Being super strict about like how、oh, I have to cycle everything, we took a lot of rest days. But I mean, we did do quite a lot of riding as well.、Um, so the average day would just be like wake up, pack up. Oh, it's actually really sweet. My parents used to open my, my sister and I shared a tent, and they would like open our tent and put in some coffee. <laughs> be like, wake up, girls! Time to ride our bikes. And we'd be like, oh, it's cold. I don't want to ride my bike today. <laughs> I actually remember at the beginning of the trip there was one day that was like really rainy and I was just not having it. I was like, Dad, I don't want to ride. It's rainy and cold. And he was just like, Okay, you don't have to. You can stay here. Okay. That's not gonna work. Shut up, kid. Never mind.、Um, but the, in terms of the dynamics.、Um, I think we just got really, really lucky that the sort of personalities in our family.、Um, Kind of just that we had the odd clash, but it was very much the exception. Like it, there, there weren't sort of any brewing tensions or、um, kind of patterns that would play out. And the, like there, it wasn't like by the end of the year we were sick of each other. I think we actually just got closer and closer.、Um, my sister and I, especially, I think we, like we'd always been best friends since we were little. But spending every day together and getting to really like we, our minds work in a kind of similar way. We had the same sort of philosophical and spiritual interests, and being able to have these experiences and discuss them together. We were reading similar books, and it was just so like it was such a privilege to be able to do that with her. And、um, it was, and and we're both very sensitive, and my parents aren't like very sensitive, sort of mushy people. So we had like our little team, and they had their little team, and our teams were friends. But <laughs> it was,、um, yeah, no, it's at, at the. I would recommend it for every family. Like, did your dad not feel like a huge amount of pressure, or your mom not feel like a huge amount of pressure? Like having both their kids with, and like making sure that they're happy. Like, yeah, did they not feel loads of pressure from it? I mean, I think the way that we're lucky is that、um, neither of my parents are, are really wired to be like that. I think my dad has always felt a lot of pressure. He's always been、um, like a, a phenomenal leader in everything that he does. He always ends up being this sort of he, he's like quiet, humble, but Such a strong mind,、um, like very fair, very compassionate. So he always ends up just guiding everyone the right way, and he always says the right thing. He always gives the right advice, and people don't take it, including me. And then he ends up being right, and he'll never rub it in your face, and it's so frustrating. <laughs> so now my sister and I just know, like, if he gives advice, and you just take the advice <laughs> and suck it up. And、um, but I think so. He was sort of、um, he he. He's really good at being able to just not create drama where there doesn't need to be drama. So, in this case, like yes, there probably was pressure. And if something had gone wrong, like when we when we left, my mom actually got hit by a car on the first day, and I think it is scary because you think like, shit, if if something goes very badly here, there we will of course people will judge and say you were irresponsible. But I think my dad had the sort of 
um, emotional maturity and strength to be like, well, yes, this is there were risks, and we decided as a family that we were willing to take these risks. And that the thing about risks is that they don't always, um, you know, sometimes it does go badly. And I think he he would was comfortable to just say like, well, it, we took a chance and it didn't work out, and but we're still glad that we took it. And my mom is kind of she's just like fuck it. <laughs> I was like she was like I'm not scared of anything happening to my kids because I will protect them and she did like she a man hit my sister on the head with a machete and my mom chased that man <laughs> um, she has no fear and um, did that not affect the way you surely you must have been shaken and like like, did you not feel fear every time you went past another person now with a machete did you not like did it not change everything? I think my sister did have a little bit of, um, like she would say that her heart would start racing um, sort of when we would then ride past people holding big knives. Um, so, that, yeah, I think she was probably the most affected. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess my main fear was just the elephants. <laughs> so that was like, I was focused on that. I think if I... Um, I, I definitely feel differently when I'm riding by myself. Like, I feel a lot of fear very often um, when I'm cycling alone. I feel really vulnerable, um, no matter where it is that I'm riding. Um, but I think on the trip, just being, I think specifically being with my dad and my mom, um, there was just something very, my parents have just always made me feel very, very safe and my sister as well that we feel like anything can go wrong even bad bad things and you just feel like it'll somehow be okay so I think maybe that's what made the difference so your mom is hardcore and she also got knocked off her bike on the first day and still cycled she didn't get injured yeah, I mean, it, it was actually, it was, so she did get injured. Um, she she hurt her arm like, quite badly. Um, but in a way, like, it was actually a blessing that she was the one that got hit because if it had been any of us, she would have said, no, we're going to hospital, we're not doing this trip. But it was, like, it was very, very traumatic to watch because our normal riding structure um, was that I would ride at the back just behind my mom and sort of keep an eye on her because she's, um, she's sort of doesn't have good hearing. She's deaf in the one ear and half deaf in the other ear. So oh, it's wow. like um, she doesn't have mom. If you ever listen to this, like I love you so much, but your voice sense is very bad. <laughs> and so she kind of just like wanders into the road. <laughs> so I would try and like ride sort of between her and the traffic and just try and have a sense, um, which did very much get on her nerves sometimes. So to watch her now riding with one arm, holding the handle on bed and power drive, which is like the most, there's no shoulder, the cars are driving like crazy, there's dogs running into the road. And then, so it was stressful at first. Then I watched literally a car coming head on for my mom. And smack her and she fell, and then she fell off her bike. Like, we, is she alive? So that's like I will always remember that that incident, and then um, and then to keep riding after that, I was just 
it's yeah that was probably the worst day of the trip for me because in my head i was just saying like we do not stand a chance of making it through this whole year without this happening again and somebody actually getting killed yeah that's day one that's day one that was the first hour of leaving our house But the Phillips family shrugged off the crash and persevered through day one, all the way through to year one. And the experience cycling through Africa would perhaps sow the seed for Tegan's upcoming challenge, setting the female world record time cycling from Cairo to Cape Town. So the first thing I want to say is like, it's super cool that you're on a cycle to Cairo, but like making a public statement that you're on a break a record, like, is that not like huge pressure? And so why, why Cairo, why that record, why, like, why that? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so I think uh, the the angle that I'm trying to push is that I want to set a record. Like, is there no record? there's no woman's record. For Cape to Cairo? Cairo to Cape Town. Cairo to Cape Oh, so you start at Cairo, come to Cape Town, that's the route? Yeah. And there's no woman's record. There's no, and that's why I want to do it. There's the men's record has been broken a bazillion times, and they've had tons of funding put into it, press, everything. And there's no woman cycled. Women have cycled. Many women have cycled it. There's just never been um, to get it verified by Guinness. There's like a lot of steps that you have to take, and um, and none of them have taken this I mean to be fair so Guinness is when I applied for Guinness um, to set the record they put the time at 70 days which I don't know if a woman has done it in 70 days or less I don't think so um, because that's sort of the speed that you would like it's, it's quite a fast effort I mean I want to try and do it in quite a lot less than 70 days but I have no idea how I don't know how realistic that is or how viable it is um, because there's for one like a like I have a kind of sense of what my body can do but I've never done a 10,000 kilometer ride before in as fast as possible so I'm <laughs> I can't um, I can hope but I can't predict what my body will be able to handle but then the, on the logistical delay side of things is so much that could happen. So, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but I just want people to be able to Google what is the woman's record and there's something there. So you need a support crew for this? Yeah, I mean, like Mark Beaumont did it without a support crew, but for this, I would I was always going to do it with a support crew because, um, for one, I don't think I'd be fast enough if I had to carry everything. Um, like I really just want to see how fast I can go so I'm going to optimize that however I can um, and then I think also just for security like I, I personally have met multiple women who have cycled from Cairo to Cape Town solo and it's definitely possible um, but I think it, uh, it it can make you vulnerable to certain like delays of, of people especially say like Egypt for example um where people are just more curious. Uh, there's ideas about women that's kind of, I think, maybe just a little bit more likely to get hassled. So um, I think for just speed and safety to have 
cars with me. And now to go through Ethiopia. The war in Tigray, the struggle over the Nile, the Eritrea factor, Egypt, all of these things just make for a much more combustible mix. Ethiopia is already embroiled in a brutal civil war. A new international conflict would prove devastating, not just for Ethiopia, but the entire region. So it's literally just in the last sort of like two weeks that I've realized like quite how intense the situation is in Ethiopia. And I haven't had too many deep discussions with the team um, about what we're going to do. So stay tuned. Um, but my, yeah, so I've got a crew. I, I ideally will have two vehicles um, so that they can do shifts. And the people in the vehicles are all adventurers themselves. Um, they've all traveled Africa. And so other than, than the risks now across the border, um, are you not scared or feeling paralyzed by this at all? Like, like not only is the adventure a massive toss but like you've added like a whole bunch of new dynamics to doing an adventure like is it not paralyzing yeah there's a lot of mornings there just like i think i'm gonna stay in bed for three hours and just cry <laughs> um, yeah no it's i like it is so overwhelming and the idea of I think what I find personally really difficult is when you do start having all of these like stakeholders that are people that are personally following or people that have put in money or sponsored gear and now suddenly you're accountable to all these people and even though everybody is understanding, there's still an expectation. And um, so it's, it's sort of like now this thing that I can't, there's a lot, there's so much that I don't have control over um, so I can't guarantee that it will happen. But if it doesn't happen, a lot of people will be disappointed. Like they'll be understanding, but they'll be disappointed. So that's what's hanging over my head every day. Um, very self-inflicted. But I, I think it's something that a lot of adventurers or anybody that starts anything, a cafe or a, a project, a podcast, like um, it's, it is something that's a really, really big part of the challenge. And it's part of the success if you do get it done um it was overcoming that sort of paralyzing fear and just sort of keeping going so how do you overcome it uh you just don't stop <laughs> i think it's it's literally it's not a it's not a proactive thing it's just a it's it's not about like what action you take to overcome it it's just about the fact that you don't throw in the towel and you just sort of like wait out the really really tough parts and then when you do have a little next step to take, eventually taking that step. But it's literally a case of, but like the same when you're racing and you get really, really, really tired, you just don't scratch, don't pull out of the race. Like you sit on the side of the road for five hours until you can get back on your bike and then you keep going. That's actually a really useful distinction that has helped me to keep going is not saying I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna finish this, um, I'm this, thing is going to succeed but with or even with my career it'd be like I'm going to be a successful world like it just saying changing your commitment to being like I'm going to try and I'm going to keep trying until it's physically impossible to stop trying and it's not I can't control whether or not I finish the, the ride but I can control whether or not I stop trying so it's almost like putting yourself in a position where you do have it's, it's like empowering yourself 
to do something that you can do and you can control is that whether or not you put in effort. And if we take one thing away from Tegan and her journey, maybe it should be just that. That often the only thing we can control is how hard we try and when we throw that towel in. So let's go out and simply keep trying. Keeping It Wild is a Telltale Media production. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, keep well and keep wild. Keep it wild.